Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who are raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at the privacy, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus primarily on Web2 and Web3 brands who are building for these audiences specifically. I'm Samuel Coindesk and our co-host, Avery Ekinini. Avery, how is it going? It is a beautiful January day here in New York City. I'm great. I'm really excited for our next guest. And I'm really excited for the momentum that we've been building on this podcast, Sam. I know we've done several episodes now, and it's been amazing to hear feedback from some listeners and from guests. So I am excited for what we're going to cover today. I think it's a little bit different than what we've covered in some previous episodes, given our guest background and you know how integral she's been to building a couple really successful Web2 companies and Web3 companies. Yeah, our guest is Jamie Schmidt, and she is someone who you should all go follow. Her handles will be in the show notes, but talk about someone who is not only a serial entrepreneur, but like a serial just big thinker. I just think everything she seems to touch, she gets in early, she thinks about it, she's really conscious of what she is making instead of just coming out with something. And I'm very excited for us to talk with her in a bit. But first, a couple things just to bring up. I'm actually, as we speak, in Paris. And I just got off a nine-hour train ride from Davos. That's it? Only nine hours? Only nine hours, I know. And uh, we held a bunch of events for Coindesk at Davos this year with some amazing partners. And just like we had the conversation about CES, you know, I go to these things and I kind of keep looking for Web3. And what's really interesting about Davos is that, you know, if you're on the sort of main promenade, there are Web3 companies everywhere, right? There is everything from sort of Circle and Hedera and Filecoin and Stellar and all the folks that we were involved with to like Meta and Amazon and Google. And a lot of them are still talking about these types of things. I asked our colleague, Michael Casey, who's our chief content officer, inside the Congress, is there some Web3 conversation going on? He said, inside, it's a lot more skeptical than it is on the outside. I think when you have these economists and you have sort of big money and CEOs in the room, it sounds like there's still some work we got to do. So I'm glad we're doing this because I think that the brand access point is one that really gets us there. Do you have any thoughts on Davos? I've never been, but I've heard a lot of amazing things about Davos over the years. Hopefully sometime I will make it there. I saw there was some cool Web3 activity, what Archive did, you know, with MasterCard and Polygon looked really cool. 
I know you all were hosting a bunch of cool stuff there. And I saw quite a few sort of Web3 leaders attending and evangelizing what's happening in this world. What was your take, Sam? I think it's still early, you know? I think at the Art Basels and the South Bys and Consensus and Vcon, we see this stuff day in, day out at places like CES and at Davos. We're still building it. But I think, you know, people are excited about crypto. They're not as scared as I thought they would be, considering, again, it's kind of more of a, you know, money makes the world go around type place. I was wondering one, what was going to happen at post sort of FTX and all this stuff going on. But a lot of amazing conversations, a lot of great people. And everyone seems pretty happy to continue to be building the space. So I think that's pretty exciting. I want to move to a next story. I don't know if you have a Birkin bag at home. I know I don't. I do. I might. <laughs> she might. For anyone who doesn't know, there's an artist named Mason Rothschild. And in January of last year, about a year ago, he created an NFT project that was called Meta Birkins. And at the time, there were sort of these one-of-one artistic interpretations of Birkin bags. And at that point, everything was fine. Hermes was not doing anything, except he then set up a marketplace where he was selling 100 of these bags. And the difference was he was doing these sort of making them, you know, out of fur and different kinds of like weird leathers and colors. But he also used the exact, like the imprint of what the Meta Birkin bag was architecturally. And so Hermes basically said, you're representing a complete Birkin bag here. And they sued. And still, for example, at OpenSea, you cannot find the Meta Birkin project. I did go and find that on some of the alternate marketplaces. They're still for sale. I think it's about a three ETH floor. So about 4,500 bucks, which again, I don't think that gets you a Birkin in the real world. So Avery, are you familiar with this Meta Birkin case that's going to trial? I am familiar with this Meta Birkin case. And it's something that I've been following because one of the biggest concerns that I hear from enterprises and corporations is from their legal team. And there is a lot of concern from, you know, longstanding brands around protecting their rights in this sort of new world and in this new ecosystem. So you know, I'm not surprised to see this case bubbling up. And I'm not surprised that Hermes is really looking to protect themselves here. And I think many of the companies that we work with at Vayner would probably be taking the same approach because they're very cautious around their IP and their trademarks. The conversation around fake products that utilize copyright and how people use them in NFTs, I think it's going to get only more heated. Nike, I believe, was sending some cease and desist to different projects recently for copyright infringement. And it sounds like you are constantly having to advise on this because it's hard to protect your copyright in a decentralized world. It's hard to protect your copyrights in a decentralized world, but at the same time, there are a lot of different technologies that exist to help identify when trademark terms are being used. So it's funny because this is reminiscent of something that actually happened to one of our partners over a year ago where their lawyers identified unapproved usage of their brand name by an artist and was flagged. They wanted to send a cease and desist, and they actually ended up collaborating with this artist to do something cool. So I know that this sort of trademark identification is something that people are constantly scraping the internet for, and brands are protecting their copyrights in all different types of ways, right? In all across social media, making sure that things are not used in an inappropriate fashion across things like resellers and reseller sites, things like eBay, things like gray market. And of course, it's going to come into the world of Web3 as well. I'm interested to see sort of like the outcome of this case and where it goes. I'm sure there's an argument that the term is general enough, but there's also the brand perspective, which is this is something that is exclusive to their brand and they want to protect all forms and fashions of its usage. It is something I can definitely say a lot of enterprises and brand marketers who are listening to this, they know how stringent their legal teams can be and rightfully so. It'll be interesting to see where this one shakes out. It sort of reminds me, you know, I watched like House of Gucci on a plane probably a year ago. And there's that moment when 
I think it was like Al Pacino's character, who was one of the original creators of Gucci, liked the fact that there was knockoff bags because it sort of, you know, felt that it was like an access point that then created aspiration to get the real bag. And I don't think we see that as much in the NFT world, but I think that there is an argument to be made, especially in kind of digital art where sort of memes and derivatives are so much a part of what everyone kind of like likes to keep a story alive. If there is an argument to be said to say, maybe Metaburkins actually help Birkin in the long run when it comes to their digital strategy. That's what they say. There's no such thing as bad publicity. And I think when it's done by a really famous artist, that's a weird line, right? Like artists critique society in a million different ways. And of course, this includes consumerism. Sometimes that can be a very good thing for the brand. Sometimes not though. So let's see where it lands. Absolutely. All right. The final thing I want to ask you about before we get to our guest is there's this big Nat Geo story that just came out about NFTs, which is very much a primer that felt about a year too late on what NFTs were. But when you have Nat Geo, which has 250 million people on their Instagram alone, sort of, you know, talking about what an NFT is, it does kind of feel like that's kind of a big moment for just consumers knowing more about NFTs and being more interested. And I think it's paired with them releasing their first collection. Did you have any thoughts when you saw that article? My first thought is I love that Nat Geo is communicating about NFTs and they've got a massive audience. They're such a well-respected publication. I love National Geographic. They really have pioneered so many different things from photography to maintaining relevance over a very long period of time. They're really good at using social. I think Nat Geo is an incredible brand. The image that was selected is not what I would have recommended. It was kind of a bored ape with a shadowy foreground. And I think that, you know, Tex said something about like, we've got you covered to learn about NFTs. And my perspective on this is that Nat Geo's audience, they care about nature photography. And that's something that they really like. And they follow National Geographic to see amazing photos of nature. And they would probably be pretty receptive to seeing an incredible landscape piece of art, an incredible photograph potentially done by an NFT artist, but they're not going to National Geographic for advice on NFTs or crypto or investments. What they're going to National Geographic for is to learn about art and to see beautiful and inspiring images. So how I would have potentially approached that differently is maybe feature like an incredible artist like Kat Simard, who is known for taking these stunning landscape photos and you know, she's really built up an incredible brand for herself as an artist, maybe feature something like that and talk about, you know, this is the next generation of, you know, Nat Geo photographers or artists. That's potentially, I think, would have resonated a little bit better. I did scroll through the comments on their post, and I feel like there was a lot of skepticism from their core audience. And, you know, I saw a bunch of different Web3 thought leaders remark on this as well probably would have selected a different image and potentially contextualize it better so that it's appealing to their audience. It seems like something that's endemic to their feed, not something that they're trying to layer in after. But you know, there's everybody's learning in this space. And I always try to not be too heavy handed with the criticism because everybody's learning together. National Geographic is an amazing brand. I think this is a cool project and program. And I know they're advised by you know Keith Grossman and, and his team at Time. So they've got some incredible advisory partners on it. And I'm curious to see how it all goes. It's so funny. You know, your intuition is actually correct in the sense that their first collection is a number of nature photographers that they're releasing, but they also did choose Ketsamard and they also have folks like John Knopf. So they kind of mixed and matched that for their collection, which I think was part of this. And I 100% agree with you that the image they chose was wrong. I went onto Instagram to obviously read this. And at first I was like, wow, this thing has 92,000 likes and 4,000 comments. And then of course, you know, two photos away, there's like two sloths that are hugging and that has 220,000 likes. 
So I think that the image could have been a lot better. And then I actually, right before we are recording this, I went again and actually the NFT post on the feed is gone. So I think they probably got so much negative that they were not willing to keep up the dialogue, which I think is just, you know, again, talk about being committed to the work you're doing. It feels like they buckled a bit. Oh, they took it down. I haven't seen it. I haven't checked today. Yeah. You know, I think that in general, like removing social posts is not the best move, right? Like unless it's truly catastrophic, like you put it up, you've got to defend it. You know, you made a strategic choice, taking it down. Um, you know, you got to stand by your choices. But Nat Geo, I'm excited to see what they do. I'm excited for this collection. Same. I see this as launching on Snow Crash. I believe it's on Solana. It looks like it is live now. So curious to see how this all goes. They've definitely got some really incredible artists, but definitely some mixed sentiment from their core audience. Absolutely. Well, let's get to our guest. Jamie Schmidt is going to come on right after the break. You know, Jamie is an incredible entrepreneur, as we were talking about. She's a really thoughtful business leader, as well as someone who has truly like pivoted into Web3 more than most and has influenced so many other people to come on. So after the break, we'll be right back with Jamie Schmidt. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Jamie Schmidt, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for being with us and being so generous with your time to join us on Gen Z. Thank you, Avery. It's an honor to be here. You've had this amazing career so far. I've been you know, following along and fangirling for quite some time. And it's been a real pleasure to get to know you over the last year or so. You've started your own brands, Mitch Naturals. You then sold that to Unilever. You have been a partner in Color Capital. And you recently co-founded BFF with Britt Morin, evangelizing Web3 to a whole new group of women. Can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? And you know, when did you know that you were an entrepreneur? I'd just love to hear a little bit more about sort of how you got here today. Yeah, thanks. I definitely didn't see myself as an entrepreneur, you know, in my childhood or even, you know, early school days. I definitely was one of those people who, you know, was always thinking for herself and sort of, I guess, outside the box and a little, you know, deviation from kind of the traditional uh, career route that my family, you know, had taken. My dad was an engineer, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and I just knew there was like something more interesting, you know, out there for me. I had no idea what that might look like. Ended up going to school and getting a degree in business, not knowing what that looked like for me, but knowing that it held some potential. And when I graduated, I was still, you know, kind of stuck playing with a couple different career fields, thinking, you know, maybe there's something I should I want to do for myself, but I don't I have no idea what that looks like and realized I have to get my hands dirty to figure that out. And so I actually just started making things. I moved to Portland, Oregon. I said I will give myself one year to break the cycle I was in. I was moving my way up the corporate ladder in human resources and told myself, all right, you have a year to figure out what you're good at, what you like doing, and you know what's interesting to you. And so literally started taking all these classes. I was taking sewing classes, interior design. I was doing some woodworking. I started making personal care products. And that's what really clicked. I actually was pregnant at the time and started paying closer attention to the products I was using on my skin. And then that in combination with this you know, creative itch, I thought it'd be really cool to make soaps and shampoos and lotions and things and, and deodorant. And that ended up being a big winner for me. I went to the farmer's markets around Portland and you know everybody there is a creator maker of some sort. So I fit right in. 
and started selling and really had, you know, zero idea of the potential and what I was doing. I started talking to customers, started talking to prospective retailers and realized uh, there was a business idea in buy natural deodorants. And it was at a time too when there weren't a lot of natural deodorants in the market, you know, still sort of a newer concept. There's a lot of a lot of people who were just skeptical, you know, rightfully so. There weren't many products that worked very well. And so I think, I, you know, I came in at, at that perfect time. This was back in 2010. So what I'm hearing is you've been early spotting a lot of different trends. I feel like if you walk down an aisle at a Target these days, there are so many different natural options. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was definitely not the case. So you sort of leaned into that. You spotted something. You saw a product need. You built that business. How did it actually go like selling it to a huge company like Unilever? Could you share a little bit about that journey? And are you still involved at Schmitz today? Yeah, I'd say, you know, one of the biggest challenges early on, especially was convincing people to take a chance on the product, right? Because again, this was 2010. Naturals weren't necessarily mainstream yet. There was, you know, a lot of skepticism and people who were just not willing to switch over from the conventional brands, you know, rightfully so. So that was the biggest challenge there was, you know, starting very niche. You know, of course, there was that consumer who was interested, but then realizing, you know, a few years in, like, there's something big here. I just have to convince the masses that they need to try it. And so, you know, we did it, right? And there was through the, through the right kind of marketing. It was through just a product that worked really well. But then also, you know, partnering with certain retailers that the natural consumer brands weren't yet partnering with, right? I'm talking, you know, Walmart, Costco, and Target, where you would walk in and see nothing but, you know, conventional brands. And so that's where I saw the big opportunity. And that's where I got excited. And I think, you know, Schmitz was early enough where we were making waves and really, you know, catching attention and taking sales from some of these heritage brands. And that's where we caught the attention of, you know, companies like Unilever and, you know, Procter & Gamble who were saying, what is, what is this uh, indie brand? And, and why are they, you know, digging into my revenue here with my other brands? And I think, you know, these big companies have two options, right? When they see that it's start their own brand in-house, right? Try to replicate the formula, try to create a customer base, you know, that's really enthusiastic about it or acquire, right? And so Schmitz was the perfect um, brand to acquire because we had such a deep, loyal, you know, customer following that it would have just taken them years to replicate in the formula too. You know, it's funny to think that I was on my stovetop, you know, creating something, not a scientist that literally was competing with some of these other products that are made in labs or less sophisticated technologies and things. But I think it was just that love for what I was doing that like made it possible. Jimmy, first of all, you know, this is our first time meeting, so been following you for a long time. So very excited to have the opportunity to chat. I also feel like I spent a lot of time in Portland and, you know, making soap and deodorant on your stove is the most Portland thing one can do. Totally. <laughs> um, I think whether it's, as everyone's talking about in the natural sort of game, or even generally in Web3, what you and your husband sort of did with CPG and with my BFF, like, it feels like you are pretty early to trends. And I'm just wondering where you think, like, what do you pay attention to? What inspires you to start looking and then saying, this isn't something I want to like go deeper in. I just wonder what that business process is for you. Yeah. You know, I think about innovation a little differently. I think, I think it's, you're taking like a proven idea to an overlooked group, right? And it's not necessarily coming up with something entirely new. It's more like, how can I take something that we know is effective or that people need deodorant, right? People need deodorant, but like, how do we do it in a way that like, there's, Groups are now already like signed on. There's still more to, to learn, right? So for example, let's learn about why a natural product might be better for your body. Um, let's learn about how, you know, essential oils and other, you know, ingredients from the earth might be beneficial. And so it's, you know, same concept with Web3, right? Like we were being so early, all of us, you know, here probably listening to this podcast, understand that there's something big to learn about and to tap into and to be discovered. And so that's what gets me excited. I really like things that start niche. 
but have a really big potential to go mass. And I do think a lot about like my roots in consumer and building Schmitz Naturals versus like what I'm doing now, because from the outside, it looks very different. But it's not so different because it's truly like starting with a small group, getting them on board, and then thinking, how do I expand this and bring this to the mainstream? Because it's, you know, either a product or a technology or service, whatever it might be, that everybody can benefit from and learn about. And so that's really where I get excited. So I love that. As you just mentioned, probably a lot of our listeners are deep in the Web3 world, curious about the Web3 world, exploring it. And they're a little bit ahead of the curve, right? Like they're interested in something that we all believe is going to be mainstream, but it isn't mainstream yet. What was your sort of Web3 conversion moment? What got you interested in participating in the early days of Web3? I would say there are a couple of things. One was just the cultural relevance. Like I wanted to be part of this cool, hip new thing that people were excited about. And so, you know, that was a big piece of it. But then I also just saw a major opportunity at that intersection of consumer and Web3, just recognizing the potential for brands, you know, brands like Schmitz, when I was growing up, you know, what we could have done there with, you know, NFTs and tokens and things and just the customer loyalty, the new approaches to marketing. And that's where I thought, whoa, there is something big here that's like going to cause a major shift. And then also, I love anything that brings opportunity for, you know, creators, makers, artists to make a name for themselves. And I think it makes me think back to my roots of starting Schmitz. You know, I was a nobody. I was a person making things in our kitchen, right? And considered myself, you know, this is creative, but like no one knew who I was. And by taking a chance on myself, you know, I, in a little bit of luck, I, you know, was able to make a name for myself. And I think with Web3 and, you know, everything that it has to offer that it makes it so much easier for so many more people. So it's a combination of those things. Can we maybe talk then into, I believe like crypto packaged goods was the first sort of project that you were involved with. For those who don't know what that is, I'd love for you to give us like the two minute on what it was. And then my follow up to that is it feels like multiple ideas that you have are about connecting sort of mentorship with those who get need the opportunity to get that exposure. So I think that would be like a really interesting way to talk about also how that is part of your process. It seems like in the sort of Web3 products that you create. Yeah. Well, so Club CPG really started shortly after my business Schmitz was acquired. You know, I heard from a lot of people looking for advice, looking for, you know, mentorship and networking and saw an opportunity to bring these people together and just talk. And that was right around the time that Clubhouse had started to gain popularity. And so it was just the perfect opportunity to get together and chat. My husband, Chris Cantino, and I started this on Clubhouse, just sort of, you know, hosting regular rooms, hosting interviews, hosting, you know, open office hours. And just talking about consumer, right? And talking about what it means to build a brand and to be an entrepreneur. And then as those conversations got deeper and time went on, then we started to see, you know, this trend in Web3 and the interest there started to pick up. And so we thought, oh, this is really interesting for, you know, the future of consumer, as I mentioned. Is there something we can do here? Um, and that's when we saw this chance to create our first project called Crypto Packaged Goods, which, you know, brought along this community that we'd already started, but then also with this token element. And so we thought, let's get together, you know, these people that are super enthusiastic about the consumer space, but then also those who are really interested in Web3, right? They might be one in the same, they might be incredibly different, but let's bring them together and see what we can do. So we created Crypto Packaged Goods. We gave away 50 tokens to what we call mentors, people that we saw as, I guess, you know, thought leaders or other, you know, innovators in the space. And then also an additional 50 that they could give to anybody in their choosing. So a mentee of theirs, a friend, somebody that they thought you could benefit. And so bringing together these 100 people and then another supply that went to the public market. And so we started um, you know, with this token, sold out really quickly. 
and just started chatting in Telegram. That's where it all started. We started, you know, breaking out different chat groups based around certain interests. Some were a little more heavy into NFTs and Web3. Some were a little more around, you know, traditional consumer, you know, business building. Others were on investment and other interests. And so you caught on, you know, pretty quickly. You know, people saw that as a, a safe and fun space to join and, and just to talk. And then as the conversation went on and Web3, you know, got more popular, we thought, what can we do to expand on this and bring in more people into the community? And so then we launched a secondary collection called POP, and that brought in another 3,000 individuals. And so with that, our target is more around, you know, business acceleration, a lot of more mentorship happening. And um, we, you know, call that sort of the club for builders, people who really are interested more in building in Web3, you know, a little less on the actual consumer packaged goods side, but more um, just generally speaking around, you know, consumer Web3 intersection. Proud holder over here. And I love what you all have done with CPG. And, you know, for a lot of the marketers listening to this, Telegram, I think, is such an effective tool. I'm in a ton of different Telegram groups and I really like them, both the sort of token gated groups and also just sort of groups amongst friends. It's always staggering to me because I spend so much of my communication time on Telegram, how few users they have from like on a relative basis. I'll talk to some of my friends from home or my friends who you know aren't as interested in Web3 yet. Um, they're like, oh, I've never even heard of Telegram. I think Telegram is amazing. And I think being able to cultivate and curate a community that then splits off into these different groups is something we're going to see a lot more happening. I know WhatsApp is building this type of functionality, which is really popular outside of the US. And I think we'll see like more and more of these sort of curated tight communities that are less sort of top-down, more ground-up, grassroots level with some element of, of specific curation that people find really valuable. And I think a big part of what you all have done in both of those groups is also curate the knowledge base and help scale your experience as an entrepreneur, your experience as a builder, along with some of the other sort of leaders that you brought together. And you and Britt Morin founded BFF just over a year ago. And you did this really interesting job of bringing in both Web3 leaders and also sort of pop culture leaders to launch this platform dedicated to bringing more women into Web3. What were you seeing in the world of crypto that felt like this was necessary? And how did you sort of think about that approach originally? Because I think it was really groundbreaking both from catering to an underserved community and also to making something accessible for a much wider swath of population. Yeah, thanks. Britt and I have both, you know, historically been really passionate about encouraging entrepreneurship amongst women in particular. We've, you know, both done different things, you know, throughout our career to show that, right? I wrote a book around, you know, my experience building Schmitz and with the hopes that it would inspire other people. Jamie, I don't mean to interrupt you, but what's the book called? We've got to get our listeners to check it out. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's called Supermaker, Crafting Business on Your Own Terms. It goes deep into just the story of like, you know, starting, as I mentioned, kind of as a nobody and bootstrapping. You know, I didn't mention that the business was entirely bootstrapped the whole time. And, you know, the fact that we were able to grow that quickly without the resources, I felt was, you know, an experience that a lot of people could probably, you know, relate to as, you know, a more realistic approach to building a business. And so I, you know, put my experience in the pages of the book. You know, Brits had other ventures in support of women entrepreneurs and, and just, as I mentioned, you know, cultural relevancy, that's always been at the forefront of, I think, both of our career paths. Like, how can we take advantage of, you know, these opportunities that are hot right now? How do we stay relevant? How do we just be a part of this? And so all these interests sort of came together. And, you know, Britt and I, to be honest, we had met once <laughs> briefly. She had hosted me um, as part of her, one of her businesses for a workshop, but we just, you know, hit it off. We knew that we shared these same interests. And she called me one day and said, I just want to pick your brain around something I'm thinking about. And 
as we started to talk, we thought we are definitely building something together. <laughs> Let's do it. And it happened quickly. We're fortunate that we have a network of women that we could tap into to really support our cause. You know, there was some VCs and entrepreneurs and you know celebrities, actresses and others that we just thought, you know what, if we can get them to bring their communities in and really show, you know, their commitment to this next phase of the internet and how it's important for us to be learning about this together, we can really pull this off. And we did, you know, we launched with our YouTube event in January of 2022. We drew a crowd of, you know, over 5,000 people and since then have had, you know, close to 65,000 views of this video which was just an introduction of, you know, what's an NFT? What is Web3? Why should I care? What are the opportunities there? And I do want to say, you know, while we targeted women originally, you know, we still have always kept the community open just for anybody who resonates with our cause, right? Like people who don't necessarily identify with the hype culture and sort of some of the, you know, bro energy, for lack of a better word, that we saw, especially early on in the space. And so we just thought, let's do something that's a little more accessible, a little less, um, you know, hype driven and slow it down and be really intentional about it. I remember that night so well. So I was fortunate to be part of the founding BFF community. And I think the first email you all sent was something like, yeah, we're hoping for 500 or 1000 attendees. And (laughs) it was just like, wow. And I like posted it on a couple of my little platforms and had a bunch of friends who were like, I'd like to tune into this. This is kind of cool. Like things for putting this together. And it was even the branding, right? It just came across as accessible, as fun, as interesting. It's for these women and non-binary people to just learn in a fun way. Like there were Spice Girls analogies. It was amazing. <laughs> and uh, just also seeing the, the interest and activity right after that. For those listeners who might not be familiar, the people who tuned in actually were airdropped an NFT for free. So to Jamie's point, it wasn't something that was like commercial in nature from the beginning. And that was such a differentiated strategy at the time. And of course, you know, many folks have sort of followed suit after that. Jamie, like as part of the launch, you had... You know, women like Gwyneth Paltrow and Mila Kunis, who are obviously very well known, but you also had like Elon Halpern and like Ariel Wengroff, people who are deep in the space. And I thought that was like just a really great balancing. And of course, Avery was the star of the show. But I'm just really interested in how much mentorship you had to do with some of the women you were onboarding to become these mentors. Like, were they all in, in Web3 in the beginning? Or as part of what you and Britt did was to say, let's tell you why. This is so interesting. And I would love to sort of know what you told anyone who had those questions. Yeah. I think that's what made it so special is that there was such an array of different levels of, you know, familiarity with Web3. For some that we reached out to, they were extremely new and thought, you know, there they say, I'd heard about this. This is super interesting. And I want to be involved, but I have nowhere to start. And so that, you know, forced caused them to jump in. Others, as you said, were a little further along and were really excited to share their knowledge. But, you know, and I'd say Britt and I were somewhere, you know, in the middle, a little bit further along, probably, but we were learning too. Like there was a ton that we didn't know. And we knew the best way to learn was to do it together as a community. And, you know, we all just grouped together and said, let's ditch the ego, right? Let's um, admit what we don't know and admit what we want to know. And, you know, we've been really leaning heavily into education since day one. We've learned a lot from our community. We've had a lot of people we've, you know, hosted through Twitter spaces, a lot of people writing articles for us. And, I feel like, you know, every day even I'm, I'm learning something new. And so I think there's just a, a level of vulnerability that was really important in building BFF, you know, positioning ourselves, not as, you know, the experts that you have to listen you know, to and, and learn from, but it's more like, how can we learn together and what can we do to position our community to, you know, get the most benefit out of it? Are there any stats that you're interested in sharing? I know, because I do think that brands today are so focused on building these really dynamic and passionate communities who become evangelists. And if you're in the Discord of BFF, you see 
that the folks who are in there are committed, they're super interested, they're engaged, they're learning and they're doing. And I just, like, I would love to know, you know, do you see a certain amount of engagement? Are there stats on kind of that you guys look at as a KPI of success that other brands might want to learn from? Yeah. You know, one thing that we do that I love is we track, you know, all the testimonials and we share them in our internal Slack. And it's just so cool to see the feedback and just the way, you know, different things we're doing are really impacting, you know, our community's lives. And I think it's really important for any community to, you know, pause and take in that information and just say, hey, like, look at this story that somebody shared. Like, this is really cool. And then on a more technical level, you know, we have other metrics that, you know, that we're super inspired by. For example, we have our perk shop that we launched in April. It's a platform or I guess an extension of our website where our community can come in and claim certain perks. So different benefits from brand partners, different services, maybe some discounts or community allow lists with some of our, you know, partnering communities. And so we look at, you know, how much of those perks are being claimed. So for example, we've had to date, you know, since April of 2022, 75,000 know, perks claimed through the community, which is really incredible. We have a new newsletter that came out just early this summer of 2022, already 70,000 subscribers to that. Our open rate is really high. So we're just looking at, you know, just the engagement really and you know, on different levels. We have an SMS, you know, texting system where we will reach out to our community that way because not everybody wants to be in the Discord or they're not on Twitter. And so we look at, you know, those rates, which are really high. And we think that's so important to, you know, meet our community where they're at. So always looking for, you know, different ways and different channels to reach, you know, our people. We had a few awards within our first year, which was really cool and something we're proud of. For example, at NFT NYC, we are awarded best onboarding experience for new users. So that was just validation of what we were doing. And so definitely lots to be proud of. You know, this is our one year anniversary month um, this January. And so we're actually compiling a lot of those stats that, you know, will be fun to reflect on and share with our community. That's amazing. And Jamie, you've built several like very successful communities from Schmidt's Naturals to Club CBG to BFF. And, you know, for folks who are curious about how to build these communities and foster these communities and build these advocates, what advice would you have for brands and founders who are looking to enter the Web3 space? I think one of the most important things I've learned is that every community will have momentum at different times, right? Like you might see one community popping off or getting you know, a ton of attention for something. And I think those are the moments that you celebrate each other, right? And you realize, okay, my moment isn't right now, but it's coming. And so just having patience and realizing everybody's on their own timeline, I think is incredibly important. Also, there's a no you know, one size fits all model for community building. I think that's really key. We see a lot of advice around the best way to build a community, but I think it's so unique to each project and each brand that I think it's really important for businesses or communities to understand, you know, what are the KPIs that they're looking for and what is most important? And also, like, if you are building a token-gated community, for example, to understand that the token is only one piece of that community and that the emphasis is on so many other metrics and so many other factors that I think are, you know, just equally important. I think we get so hung up on floor price and, you know, free airdrops and things like that. But there's so many other pieces to this business, right? Like communities are businesses. And so it's easy to lose sight of that. And I think it's important to step back sometimes and realize, okay, the NFT or the token is one piece of this much bigger thing that I'm building. I think that's so valuable. I think, you know, Avery and I talk, I think so much about not only are we early, but the evolution of how quickly things have changed over this last year and a half. And you guys were doing it you know, especially with CPG and then with BFF, where you didn't know what was going to happen. So everything feels like a new thing. 
as we look into 2023, you know, whether it's with CPG or BFF, are there new use cases? Are there new things that you guys are looking to bring out that you think sort of help evolve the space and your communities and product moving forward? Yeah, I think just in general, token gated communities are going to be where a lot of emphasis is on in NFTs. I get really excited about different interest groups. You know, for CPG, of course, it's builders and you know entrepreneurs. Um, for BFF, it's a little more broad, but it's people who are interested in networking, taking advantage of you know the potential within Web three. But that I think we're going to see a lot more really specific kind of niche communities. And the thing that's so cool about it is that you can sell your token when you've gotten the value out of it, right? And I think that's a point that's overlooked often is that like these NFT communities, we're not indebted to them forever, right? Like if you get the value out of them that you wanted, then you can go and sell it off. And so it's just like an evolution in what it means, you know, to have a subscription to something. But I think like one thing I'm super into right now is pickleball. Like, where's the pickleball community that I can buy a token for? What kind of benefits can I get? Like, does it mean I get a new paddle every year or whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be? But it'll be fun to see, I think, the evolution into those interest groups. That is an amazing insight. I don't know if you know this, Jamie, but Gary actually has a pickleball team. And some of our partners now own pickleball teams. Like Anheuser-Busch just bought one. We're very into pickleball, the Vayner family. And actually, we have some ideas for exactly what you just talked about. So maybe those will get manifested in 2023. I love it. Wait, so it's Vayner versus BFF at pickleball is what I'm hearing. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Exactly. I have a feeling that Jamie's got like, you know, mad pickleball skills though. So It's getting better. It's getting a lot better. I play several times a week. Oh, wow. I'm pretty into it. Yeah. I love pickleball. It's all over Florida. It has been all over Florida for quite some time because, you know, the senior citizen community, but it's now sweeping the young adults. And Jamie, I'm curious, when you look into 2023, what are some of the predictions that you may have as a business builder, as a marketer? What are the things that you're excited about? Is it AI? Is it, you know, in real life use cases? Is it something else that people don't see quite yet, but you might see sort of bubbling under the surface? Yeah, I think it's going to be so individualized for each consumer. I tweeted actually just recently about like every consumer is a target market for some some form of NFT, right? So whether it's art or other, some other kind of collectible or it's you know loyalty rewards for brands that you love, there is some way that every single person on this planet, I think, can benefit. And it's a matter of just figuring out what that is. And one use case that you know I've heard talked about a lot recently is just like medical records, for example, right? You might say, you know, my 90-year-old grandpa doesn't have a use for NFTs. What are you talking about? But when he goes to the doctor, like the blockchain technology, like how that will save him time filling out forms and how your medical records will live, you know, on blockchain and save time and stress and things like that. And so I just think, you know, we're at a point in evolution where like our lives are just gonna become simpler and more, I don't know, intentional with all the things we do. We're not gonna waste time as much anymore. Absolutely. And I think it's something that continues to happen, right? Convenience is queen for not just Americans, but people all across the world. Like efficiency is the name of the game. And if technology can make people's lives better, simpler, easier, that will be something that we continue to see driving adoption. Awesome. So Jamie, thank you so much for being with us today. This was amazing. Where can listeners go to learn more about you and more about some of the brands that you've built? And buy the book. Oh, and buy the book. Thank you. Well, the best place, I think, you know, Twitter and Instagram, I'm on there, Jamie Schmidt. It's J-A-I-M-E-S-C-H-M-I-D-T. <laughs> and then BFF, same, you know, across all socials, it's my BFF. And the book, thanks for asking, Amazon or in any booksellers, you know, indie or mass, um, it's just Supermaker. And I'm available. People have questions. I love hearing from you. So thank you. Jamie, thanks so much for spending so much time with us. This was wonderful both to meet you, but really to hear your story. It's super inspiring. Thank you. I enjoyed it. If
Avery, that was super interesting hearing from Jamie. Like I said, I've been following her since the beginning, and I really appreciate you sort of coaxing her to come on and talk with us, since I know you're also involved with BFF. What was the takeaway for you that stood out the most? I love what Jamie said around there's no one size fits all. She's built several different community first brands, you know, starting from Schmidt's Naturals to Club CBG to BFF, and I'm sure there'll be many more. And I think she's exactly right. Like there's not one formula. And I think a lot of times brands are looking for what's the plea book or what's the guaranteed way to success. And it's not always a linear path. In fact, it rarely is. And, you know, Jamie's experienced that firsthand. So I love what she said around, you know, it has to be so unique. And secondarily, you have to have patience because you can have some of the best ideas in the world and some of them hit and some of them don't. And I think that's such a, you know, entrepreneur battle scar learning. It's something that, you know, I've heard from a lot of different entrepreneurs. And Jamie's really been in it and been really successful with building something, bootstrapping it, and you know, selling it to a major conglomerate. And then off she goes to launch the next thing and leaning into this sort of world of Web3. I think some of our listeners can probably appreciate like how early natural deodorant 13 years ago was. Like That was not really a thing. Now everybody is aluminum-free everything, especially on the coasts. And that was not the case 13 years ago. And being really early to something like that and having to really build awareness and then a community around it, I think is really impressive. 100%. And I think what she said, which I think is actually, frankly, antithetical to the way a lot of the NFT sort of core degen crowd acts. But the fact that she said, don't hold it forever if it's not bringing you value, right? I think that's such a key learning. I know as someone who looks at my wallet often and sees a lot of things that I held way too long, and not even because I don't find value, but I just don't utilize whether it's the communities anymore or what the token offers or what the community offers. So the idea, if you've gotten your value out of it, it's okay to sell it to someone else who may get value, I think is a really big learning and a really big insight that I know I want to think about a lot more in the stuff that we design. Avery, so nice to see you. As always, looking forward to all of our discussions. Wait, you're going to be in Asia next week? Are we doing this from across the globe? Gen Z does not sleep. We're doing it. Amazing. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Appreciate you. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.